So I don't know um, if you guys have noticed this, but it seems like it's become a bit of a tradition. Oh, yes. I got, I got reminded two minutes before I came up here. There's children's church in the back. Uh, when I say the back, I mean downstairs. See, now I'm all flustered. Um, it's ages two to six, and uh, you are welcome to go for that. I'll try again. I don't know if you've noticed this, but it seems like somehow it's become a bit of a tradition uh, for me to be the one who uh, introduces new sermon series. It's happened a few times in a row. It's this sort of thing that has developed. Uh, And I don't think that a lot of uh, uh, conscious thought has gone into that as a pastoral team. Um, But maybe just partially because of the way the scheduling has worked. uh, And and partially because I'm a bit of a big picture thinker. I like to think in that way. Uh, And partially because I'm usually the first one out of the three of us to volunteer to read a book on the subject. It has ended up that I have gotten the opportunity to introduce a lot of different topics, which is great. I've, I've enjoyed that opportunity, and I enjoy setting the stage for these things. But when Mike and Darren and I sat down to talk about how we wanted to set up our sermon series over the summer, we decided on the idea of running through the Beatitudes, these statements of blessing that Jesus makes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. And we decided that we would start the series on June 3rd, last week, Sunday with Darren preaching. And I thought, hey, what a nice change of pace. Taking the second spot in our series, doing a middle-of-the-pack sermon. And yet, somehow, despite our planning, here I stand before you, ready to jump into the first beatitude. It was all an elaborate hoax, I guess. And I get to intro this thing for you anyways. I hope it's clear that I'm not actually unhappy about the way things have turned out. First of all, Uh, Because I actually do legitimately enjoy starting things. And second, because I love the choice that Darren made. The way that he decided to take a step back when starting this series and talk to us about kingdom. About the idea of kingdom. Uh, For any of you who missed that sermon, you can check it out on our website. Or subscribe to our podcast. I'm going to keep plugging those things when I come up here. Because I think it's a great opportunity to stay connected. I know especially over summer... Um, you end up missing services for all sorts of reasons. And it's an opportunity uh, to keep uh, a part of what's going on here at Pleasant Valley in a real, in a real and significant way. And, and in a series like this where things are building on each other and, uh, and sort of referencing back to each other and where we've had this foundational kingdom message that Darren gave last week that sort of sets the stage for the rest of these, it's an opportunity to sort of get that information and to make sure that you're tracking along with us as we walk through this. So I'm not going to go into the idea of kingdom too much, uh, but understand that this idea will keep popping up through these beatitudes, through these different statements that we are looking at. This idea of Jesus establishing something that doesn't follow the rules of the kingdoms that we tend to think of. A lot of modern commentaries uh, and authors uh, and people and preachers refer to this Ideas, the upside-down kingdom. Many of you will have heard that term before, the upside-down kingdom. Because Jesus takes these ideas uh, that the Jewish people had at that time, that his followers had at that time, that people had about what it means to live a good life, and a lot of these things he turns onto their head. And this kingdom mindset shows up everywhere. It shows up in Jesus' actions, in his parables, in the ways that he instructs his disciples, Uh, But the clearest and most complete look that we get 
that Jesus' teaching on kingdom comes here. In the Sermon on the Mount, three chapters of teaching straight from Jesus' self. This is the longest complete sermon that we have in the Bible from Jesus himself. And so it's an incredibly important piece of Scripture to understand and dig into. And there are a few things that I want to point out at the beginning of this sermon that are really significant, but they're kind of uh, isolated ideas. They're each their own island of thought. And so I want to warn you that we are going to get to the first beatitude in verse 3, although wouldn't it be funny if I spent the entire sermon talking about the first two verses and then Darren showed up next week and he had to do the first one? I won't do that, I promise. I will get to the first beatitude today, but I do want to touch on a few other things first. First, I want to talk about the word beatitude. Now, the word beatitude doesn't show up anywhere in the actual text. Jesus never says, here are my beatitudes. Uh, And and Matthew, who wrote the book, doesn't give it that title either. He doesn't write the word beatitude in his text. The beatitudes, that titling, is simply something that was added later to help reference this section of verses. And beatitude is not a word that gets a lot of use these days. Last week, I think Darren brought up the fact that these Beatitudes are not simply rules or regulations to follow or instructions for setting up a literal kingdom. Rather, they are ways of being or they're attitudes, right? Beatitudes. And that's a great way to remember what the series or what this section gets at, but it's not where the original word gets its meaning. Uh, The actual definition of the word, according to my research, is basically blessed or happy, or joy-filled, which is probably not surprising, given the, uh, the content of this section. But when I looked into the background of the word, it turns out that through history, the word beatitude has only really been used to reference this passage of Scripture, and sort of a sister passage in Luke. And I had a hard time figuring out whether the word was newly created, specifically to reference these verses, or if it was an existing word that was simply repurposed to reference these verses. But whichever it was, since it was used to reference these verses, that is almost the only meaning it has. It's the only thing that it is used to describe. I did a search on Google to see what would happen if I searched for the word beatitude and told Google to ignore the words Jesus and Matthew and Bible. So I looked for the word beatitude without any of those other words on the page. And I found nothing. I found a couple of store names, a couple of band names. There's really nothing out there that references beatitude without talking about these verses, these eight ideas that we're going to be walking through. And to me, that says something about how important these phrases are. It's amazing to me that as the early church was processing and categorizing these sayings, this section of Scripture, that they were so impactful, that they were so fundamental and important that they basically developed or repurposed a word to only focus on these specific ideas. And when we are thinking about the significance of this passage, I also think it's really important to take a look at how Matthew chooses to open up this chapter, how he chooses to introduce this sermon. And Matthew 5, verse 1 in the NASB, which is a translation that tries really hard to stick as closely as possible to the meaning 
of the original words. It sometimes sacrifices a bit of readability, but it's really, really trying to stick to the exact meaning of the original text. And it says this, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them. It seems like an interesting bit of detail there. Why does the scriptures, why did Matthew need to specify that Jesus opened his mouth to teach? I think there are two things to take away from this. At least there are two things that struck me. Uh, The first little truth here is that Jesus did a huge amount of teaching without ever opening his mouth. His actions, his life itself, was a tool for teaching those around him. His miracles taught. His choice of friends and disciples taught. His treatment of the poor and of women and of children taught without ever having to open his mouth. But here, in this context, on this mountain, it was time for Jesus to speak. The other thing I think of when I read this is how many times through Scripture God speaks through someone else. When God is recruiting Moses, and Moses says he doesn't think he's a good enough public speaker, God says to him, who makes people able to speak or makes them deaf and unable to speak? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Don't you know that I am the one that does these things? Now go, when you speak, I will be with you and give you the words to say. God spoke through Moses. God spoke through Abraham, God spoke through the Old Testament prophets, through John the Baptist, and through countless others in history, but here, for the first time since the Garden of Eden, God is with his people and he is speaking for himself. He is opening his own mouth and speaking. No distortion, no miscommunication, straight from God's mouth to the ears of the people. And the first word out of his mouth is a good one. And you probably know what it is without me saying it, but I'm going to build up some false suspense here by jumping back into the Old Testament to highlight something really incredible. Now, I try to be careful when I speak negatively about something, but I will say that there are a lot of dumb books out there that try and find hidden meanings and secrets uh, in Scripture. These codes and messages that maybe if you read it right or if you skip every other verse or if you find these numbers, then you can predict the future somehow or you can unlock some sort of extra level or layer to what the Bible is trying to say to us. The Bible doesn't have hidden meanings. There isn't a secret level that you can get to by unlocking some special code. The Bible does become richer and deeper as you study it, as you dig into it, as you memorize it. But there's nothing hidden here. It's all right in front of us. I want to say that strongly. That said, this is pretty cool. I want you to look up something and report back to me. Uh, What is the last word in the Old Testament? The end of Malachi, chapter 4, the last word. Uh, Bonus points if you've got a New Living or NASB translation or even the message. um, Because it gets exactly at what I want to highlight here. But if someone can look up in their Bible and find what the last word in the Old Testament is. And then let me know. I already know. but Curse. The final word in the Old Testament 
the word that wraps up the entire first half of the Bible, first two-thirds of the Bible really, is the word curse. The Old Testament ends with this word, and then there is 700 years of silence. We don't have any scripture from the time between that word and the time that the New Testament begins. And then, at the beginning of Matthew, God comes to earth as a human, the Savior of the world, our Messiah. And the first three chapters of Matthew deal with Jesus' birth and events around that, but Matthew quickly jumps forward to Jesus as an adult. And the first voice we hear in Matthew chapter 3 is not Jesus, it's the voice of John the Baptist. And in Matthew chapter 3, can anybody tell me, this is like a test, I'm like a school teacher up here, this is good. Can anybody tell me what the first word out of John the Baptist's mouth is? This is the first sort of word of teaching we hear in the New Testament. Repent. The Old Testament ends with curse. 700 years later, a voice in the wilderness is calling out, repent. Repent why? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The upside-down kingdom is here. And then a few chapters later, we get to Matthew chapter 5, which is the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus has been active already. Uh, He's been calling disciples. He got baptized. He spent 40 days in the wilderness. But this is his first time teaching to the crowds. This is his first time of intentional teaching to Israel. This is the first clear statement out of Jesus' mouth about how we are to live and about what life looks like in this new kingdom. And so Jesus goes up onto a mountain and he sits down and his disciples gather around him and he opens his mouth and he begins to teach, saying, blessed. God is here and we are blessed. Amen? Amen. And so with that word, we arrive at Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, our scripture passage for today. It says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Thirteen words, but a lot that we can unpack there. Whenever I approach a piece of scripture for a sermon, I'm asking questions. What do I need to understand in order to get this? What do I want to dig into more? And, and when you read your Bibles, don't be afraid to ask questions of the text, to read critically, to do some processing and praying as you read, and to ask the Holy Spirit to speak into your heart about these things. And when I read this text, when I read this verse, here are some questions that I think of. This is stuff that comes into my head when I'm reading this. I go, what does Jesus mean by blessed exactly? What, is, what does he mean when he's saying that word? What does it mean or what does it look like to be poor in spirit? Why do the poor in spirit get access to the kingdom of heaven? And then finally, what difference should this be making in my life? Those are sort of the questions rolling around in my head as I look at a verse like this. And that's actually the sort of secret sauce to sermon writing, by the way. It's that simple. You read a passage and you ask, what is Jesus and Matthew trying to say? through this passage, and that might break down into a few different thoughts, and how should that affect my life? Then you spend time reading other pieces of scripture, praying, doing research into the work of other smart and godly people who have asked those questions before, and then you get the opportunity to come up behind this pulpit and share what you have discovered, what God has been working in your heart with your church family, 
So for the rest of the time that I have left, I want to dig through those four questions that I had when reading this passage. First, what does Jesus mean by blessed? And this one is pretty easy because the statement itself answers the question. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But I wanted to stop at this word for just a moment because it can be so easily misinterpreted. The word blessed has been watered down in our culture to refer to something that talks about material wealth or or random good luck or other external situations. On Twitter, I don't know how many of you are on Twitter, I barely understand it myself, but on Twitter the word has become a joke. Hashtag blessed is most often used as a punchline for people who are trying to flaunt or brag about their good fortune under the cover of gratitude. And when Jesus uses this word blessed, it doesn't have all that baggage that comes with it today. He's not saying that you have a higher than usual chance of winning the lottery if you're poor in spirit. He's not saying that you're going to get a promotion at work if you're poor in spirit. Blessing in this case is not an external thing at all. The word that is used here is very specifically an inward joy and happiness. And actually just saying happy isn't really enough. This Greek word, when it's used in in non-Christian writings, when we see it used outside of the Bible, in, in pagan literature around this time, this word means something that is set aside for the gods themselves. A level of joy and happiness and contentment that is only achievable by supernatural beings. That is how the pagan Greeks use this word. And Jesus is saying Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. It is a transcendent happiness. It is a supernatural joy. So when Jesus says we are blessed, he is not, it's not like Oprah telling us to look under our seats for a prize. He is speaking about a transformation in our state of being and in our own lives. So Jesus says we will be blessed. Why? We will be blessed if we are poor in spirit, which leads us to our second question. What does being poor in spirit actually look like? One preacher that I read talked about speaking to a university crowd, and at the end of his talk, a student approached with a question. Isn't Christianity just a crutch for people who can't make it on their own? The preacher answered, yes. Yes, of course it is. And that's a common criticism of religion in general, and Christianity in specific, that it's a crutch for the weak. But I don't think that's a valid criticism. People don't look at a crutch and say, that's bad, it's a crutch. Crutches themselves are not bad things. So then why does a crutch become a bad thing when we're talking about Christianity? And I think the answer most people would give, if they're honest, is this. If Christianity is a crutch, that means I'm a cripple. And in our self-help, self-sufficient society, we don't like to see ourselves as cripples. And so it is offensive to our self-worth to label Christianity as a crutch. But Jesus says, it is not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Being poor in spirit, I think, is as simple as understanding that we need a crutch. Paul gets this. And in Romans 3, verses 10 to 12, he says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. 
All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Whether or not you feel self-sufficient doesn't matter. We are all crippled by sin. Christianity is a crutch. And thank God for the crutch because it's what saves us. And in order for that to look like a good thing, we have to recognize that we need saving. We need to be poor in spirit. Jesus is speaking to a crowd of religious do-gooders who are trying desperately to be enough, to work hard enough, to give enough, to obey enough, to judge enough, to pray enough. And Jesus says, blessed, filled with a supernatural level of joy and happiness, are those who understand they will never be enough. They can never be enough. They have the keys to the kingdom. Our world says that our sickness is that we aren't strong enough, that we don't have the backbone or the courage or the fortitude or the inner strength to battle our demons or fight for our rights or climb the ladder. The creed for our world is the ending of the Wizard of Oz. It's Glenda the Good Witch saying, Dorothy, you never needed the ruby slippers to get home. The power was in you the whole time. That is the ultimate in our world. The power was in us the whole time. But Jesus and his upside-down kingdom rejects this. Blessed are the poor in spirit means that the thing our society hates the most, helplessness, is actually the doorway through which we enter the kingdom of heaven. So how does living this way get us access to the kingdom of heaven? Just like the non-believer who sneers at the idea of a crutch even when his own legs are broken. The first step towards entering into this new kingdom is understanding that the change is necessary for our survival, that the illusion of self-sufficiency is a recipe for disaster. The verse says, blessed are the poor in spirit, but of course, as we've said already, we are all poor in spirit. So the first step, the key here, is admitting it. Charles Spurgeon, a preacher from the mid-19th century, he preached a series on the Beatitudes. And he starts his first sermon by asking a simple question. Why this one first? Why did Jesus start with this Beatitude? And he says, and I love this, a ladder, if it is to be of any use, must have its first step near the ground, or feeble climbers would never be able to mount it would have been a grievous discouragement to struggling faith if the first blessing had been given to the pure in heart. To that excellence, the young beginner can make no claim, but to the poverty of spirit, he can reach without even having to take one more step. I think it's a beautiful analogy. The first step, this first step is achievable by anyone because we have to do nothing. We have to cultivate nothing. We simply have to be broken enough to admit that we need help, that we are in need of assistance, that we are drowning and need a life raft, that, are, that we are broken and need a crutch. Jesus was speaking to a crowd that was used to following strict laws and guidelines. And this commandment reaches down to the exact place where the law can take us no further. The law is not evil. In fact, the law can be very good at leading us away from evil, but the law cannot lead us towards grace. It cannot lead us towards good. It can only take us away from things. Only grace can get us into the kingdom. 
And we are only open to grace if we recognize our need. And we only recognize our need if we can first acknowledge, if we can know that we are poor in spirit. Spurgeon says later, till we are emptied of self, we cannot be filled with God. We must be stripped before we can be clothed with righteousness which is from heaven. Christ is never precious till we are poor in spirit. We must see our own wants before we can perceive his wealth. Pride blinds the eyes, and sincere humility must open them, or the beauties of Jesus will be forever hidden from us. And we see this reflected over and over again in Scripture. There are many excellent examples of what it means to be poor in spirit. In dealing with the Lord about Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham says, I have been so bold to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes. Poor in spirit. When Jacob returns to the promised land after 20 years in exile, he wrestles with God in prayer and says, I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. David has psalm after psalm where this attitude is presented. In Psalm 51, the verses that we have on our bulletin today, he says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God you will not despise. Isaiah, when entering into a vision that puts him directly in the throne room of God, in his presence, Isaiah says, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And the New Testament is also full of those who understand what it is to be poor in spirit. John the Baptist said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Later he says, he, Jesus, must become greater, I must become less. And this man who recognized how very small he was, was called the greatest man who ever lived by Jesus. The Canaanite woman who acknowledges her low stature by comparing her own life to that of a dog is praised by Jesus, saying, O woman, great is your faith. Peter, upon witnessing Jesus' power, falls at his feet, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And Paul speaks repeatedly throughout his letters about his brokenness, about his smallness, about his poverty of spirit. In 2 Corinthians, he says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that this is all-surpassing power is from God and not us. So these examples are set forth for us. We see this over and over, this poverty of spirit in the heroes of the Bible. They didn't think they were good enough. They didn't think they had it all together. They didn't think they were accomplishing this on their own. And that is an example that we need to follow. So the last question is, what difference should this make in our lives? And it's an interesting question. Again, this verse requires no action on our parts. There's nothing that we need to do. And if we truly understand what it means to be poor in spirit, we'll recognize that no action could ever be big enough. But one of the most countercultural things that we can do as Christians is to acknowledge weakness. In a world where people are obsessed with showing strength, obsessed with being enough, There is nothing more radical or more upside down than being ready to admit our own weaknesses. John Piper summarizes the idea of being poor in spirit like this. This is sort of a practical list of what it looks like. He says, it is a sense of powerlessness in ourselves. 
It is a sense of spiritual bankruptcy and helplessness before God. It is a sense of moral uncleanness before God. It is a sense of personal unworthiness before God. It is a sense that if there is to be any life or any joy or any usefulness or any blessing, it will have to be all of God and all of grace. The reason, of course, that sense is used, he talks about to have a sense, to have a sense, is that whether or not we are powerless or whether or not we sense it, I should say, we are powerless, we are bankrupt. It's not a fun thing to talk about, our own brokenness. It's not an easy thing to confront or to face. But once we truly understand this, Jesus calls us blessed. Jesus calls us filled with a supernatural joy. Jesus says that we have the kingdom of God. This is the first step on a ladder that invites us into an upside-down world where we become less and God becomes greater. And as we climb, God says, Fear not, you worm Israel. I will be with you. I will help you. I will strengthen you. And I will hold you with my righteous right hand. Welcome to the kingdom. Amen.